Hey there. Just like the Dave Eggleston episode of Broken Silicon that was quite popular with many of you, I'm going to do an intro here just for a minute to explain why an atypical guest would be coming on. You know, typically, well, Broken Silicon describes itself as a gaming hardware podcast, but we often go into rumors and discussions about things in server and other things connected to computer hardware in general, and that's because... To a certain degree, it's all connected, and it gives you insight into things going on behind the scenes that may not be the typical frame rate measuring. But a lot of you enjoyed the Dave Eggleston episode. A lot of you enjoyed Daniel Nenny. And so, you know, Jimmy Song's the real deal. I mean, he's a lecturer for graduate courses in programming. He's been VPs, senior developers. This guy really knows his stuff. And a lot of it is Bitcoin, but a lot of it is computer science. We talk about graphics cards. We talk about, you know, advice to people studying computer science and programming right now. If you enjoy Broken Silicon guest episodes, I would find it very hard to believe you wouldn't enjoy at least most of this conversation. So yeah, we talk about Bitcoin a lot, but we wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't think it was a worthwhile conversation. And so I hope you enjoy this episode, an atypical one, but one with a guest who really has a lot of great knowledge. And again, if you enjoy Broken Silicon guest episodes, I find it highly unlikely you won't enjoy this one. So anyways, I wanted to put this intro to explain, just like that Dave Eggleston episode, why I had an atypical guest on. But without further ado, my conversation with Jimmy Song. The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a computer hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I will let my guest introduce himself. I'm Jimmy Song, and I am a Bitcoin developer, um, educator, and entrepreneur, and I've been in the Bitcoin space for quite a while, um, and we're going to hopefully talk about Bitcoin today. <laughs> yeah, usually... I mean, honestly, usually we talk about gaming hardware. I think I told you that in the email, but every now and then I'll mm -hmm. veer into like servers, uh, you know, like server hardware or network communications and then anything connected to computers, which I, I to be mm -hmm. honest, because of the current demand for gaming hardware right now, there's actually a lot of people that get mad if you bring up Bitcoin, to be entirely honest. So, <laughs> Yeah, this was the case in 2017 when graphics cards like ballooned to like three, four times the normal cost because people are using it for GPU mining on altcoins and so on. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. I had this card that I thought was splurging in 2019. It was $700, but you know, it was my favorite color. It was a special edition version. It did everything I needed it to for editing. And I was able to sell it for two grand recently. And I'm just like, <laughs> you know what? I'm moving. You guys can have it. I, I don't. I felt almost bad, but it's like I'm not missing this chance to sell. I missed the last chance. Well, what, what's crazy is there's like a market for GPU power now. So, um, you know, I, I had to do this thing a couple of months ago where I had to brute force like a bunch of uh, words because... Um, you know, somebody had forgotten uh, like the last four words mm. of their seed phrase. 
And, uh, you know, I, I needed a lot of GPU power to go through all the possibilities. And I was able to go on a website where I could just rent a bunch of like 2080 TIs and, and other ones, 1080 TIs and many others. And I, I literally rented something like 30 of them, cost me like 500 bucks over a couple of days. Uh, but I was able to brute force <laughs> and find the seed phrase that I needed to. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and that's something I tried to explain a lot, too, is it, it's not just like, you know, Ethereum mining. Uh, all the mm -hmm. way back in 2017, uh, when AMD launched their Vega graphics cards, which they basically just took a professional card because they didn't have the money to design anything else and just sold it to gamers at cost to stay in mm -hmm. the market. Uh, there were people building render farms that looked a lot like mining rigs for, like, mm -hmm. hobbyist movies and stuff like that. So, I mean, when you get graphics cards into, like, dozens of teraflops... I, I think people need to accept that they can be used for gaming or they can be used for a lot of other stuff. Well, it's got massive parallelization. That's the big thing. And you can you can do so many things with uh, with that massive parallel stuff because oftentimes like uh, what you want to do is just compute something that's small, but do it many, many times. And graphics mm -hmm. cards are just so much better for that. Um I think, uh, you know, they had, NVIDIA has like that um, that new Tesla card or something like that. It doesn't even do graphics, I think. It's, it's yeah, supposed A100. to only do, yeah, so, something like that, where where all, all it does is compute because there's such a demand for it. And there's um, a lot of applications and data science and machine learning and AI and things like that, which uh, which use these things. Well, and I've there's actually a rumor going around that they're considering using the like lesser yields of that card as a Ethereum mining card because it can do like I don't know honestly like I wouldn't be surprised if we could do like 210 mega hash like double the card I just sold for two grand. So I mean, <laughs> if I could sell some old card for two grand right now, I'm sure they're looking at that and going, well, it was meant for machine learning, but we can probably sell this for 10 grand to some people. Yeah, well, so I wonder how much of that is inflation versus um, versus just uh, market demand or whatever, because there is sort of like a chip shortage that's going on in the entire market. Um, you know, TSMC can't produce, uh, can't fab chips far, fast mm -hmm. enough. Um, the entire car industry is affected by this. You know, mo most car dealers aren't getting inventory for the spring because you need chips for the cars. Cars actually take up the yeah. most chips uh, or silicon out, out of any industry. So I honestly wonder how much of it is inflation because we did print something like four four to $5 trillion last year just in the U.S. Um, and you know, now, on a per capita basis, it was all over the world, like much more. So you know, that might be a part of it. It's very funny you say that. I, I do uh, a podcast, Die Shrink, for people who support me on Patreon. It comes out every other week. The one that came out an hour ago, I kind of just out of nowhere went into this ranch where I'm like, you know what, guys, from where I'm sitting, here's what's going on. Graphics card prices are up. Video games are now $70 instead of 60 Gas prices mm -hmm. are up. I'm moving it right now to Tennessee. Um, housing prices are up. How many things have to be up where you go, well, it's because of the availability of housing. There's a glout. Oh, it's because, you know, developers want more money for games. Oh, it's because, you know, of shipping due to COVID. Like you bring up all these different things and individually they all make sense. But I'm just kind of sitting here and going, can we all just admit everything's 20 percent more expensive? It's inflation, guys. It might you could make the argument that it's just inflation at a certain point. Oh, it's, it's definitely inflation. And you could see it in the raw materials. This is mm -hmm. where 
we're seeing shortages and like uh, you know prices going up. You can see it in lumber. You can see it in plastics. Yeah. You can see it in aluminum, copper. You know, I, like even silicon to some degree. All of that stuff is going up, and you you can you can talk to contractors. They're saying like, yes, lumber's gone up thirty percent. Just trees, right? Like there's not yeah. that much processing on these, but this is this is what happens when you print. Uh, I, you know, M2 money supply uh, last year at the beginning of last year was something like 15.5. By the end, it was 19.5 trillion. So, and that's one measure of how many US dollars are in existence. That's an increase of like 30%. You are going to feel it, right? Like yeah. even, it might not be with milk and eggs necessarily, but you're certainly seeing it in meat. You're certainly seeing it in a mm-hmm. lot of yeah. other consumer goods like video cards. Yeah. And Well, we're getting maybe a little bit ahead of ourselves. The first (laughs) point of discussion I actually had is, you know, usually I'll have on either another YouTuber who benchmarks graphics cards or someone who who works for Intel, like those types of people I usually have on. And I I drop it into the Patreon, you know, what questions do you have for them? And it's just, you know, dozens within a couple hours. You know, we actually got quite a few questions for you eventually. But at first (laughs) I like asked, where's the questions, guys? This is... This isn't some Lambo hodler who's annoying. This is a guy who's lectures for grad students. He's, I mean, you could just ask him programming questions and he would know what to say. And everyone just says they're scared to sound stupid. And I asked my friends, we were, we were playing video games, do you have any questions for him? And they're like, I don't know what question I would have that's stupid. I, I really feel like people are afraid to talk about Bitcoin or learn about it because they don't want to feel stupid, honestly. Well, and that's a, that's a normal reaction. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of other people have the reaction, well, you know, I, I kind of know what, what I'm talking about and try to fake their way in and so on. But you have to understand, this is a, like, this is not an easy system to understand. Not only do you have to know programming and the technology behind it, but you also have to know a good deal of economics and how things work and, you know, what, what money is supposed to be, what are the ideal properties of money, how Bitcoin fulfills all of that, um, social consensus, you know, like networking, there's like proof of work. There, mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that aren't obvious. And I, I got to tell you, like, I, I've been a programmer pretty much my entire life. Uh, and, you know, it took me a few years to really grasp what Bitcoin really was. Um, so, you know, for your listeners that uh, you know, feel a little bit intimidated, you should. <laughs> it's, it's a complicated <laughs> system. Uh, but, you know, like th- this is where, you know, asking some of the quote unquote stu- stupid questions kind of helps. Um, and there there is a lot of literature that's out there now that's, uh, that makes it very accessible. Um, you know, I've written a, uh, a few books on the subject. Um, I have the little, Bitcoin. Bit, the little Bitcoin book. I, was, I think it is a very good short introductory mm-hmm. book. Yeah, uh, but I mean, there, there are technical details that are not in there that might mm-hmm. be in programming Bitcoin. Uh, I've written another book, uh, Thank God for Bitcoin, which is the moral argument for Bitcoin. There's also the Bitcoin standard, which, um, you know, approaches things from an economics perspective. So, uh, you know, lots and lots of books out there now that you can go grab and, you know, be able to speak about. And the thing is, like for gamers, I think um, you... Uh, the thing that gamers have is that they understand the digital world, right? Like uh, it, you're mm-hmm. you're not some boomer that's like not can't type like ten words per minute or something like that. Um, you know, like gamers understand, okay, like this sword in World of Warcraft is worth something, and I'm I'm willing to go and pay for it because it's it's very valuable and so on. Um, they get the idea of digital scarcity. Um, it's it's maybe the idea of decentralized digital scarcity, which Bitcoin is, that's a little bit hard to wrap their head, heads around. 
um, and you know, like understand what what makes Bitcoin interesting, scarce, um, decentralized, and all of this other stuff. And, and I get that. And but you shouldn't be afraid to ask the stupid questions. Um, you know, I, I take them like almost every day on Clubhouse now. So mm-hmm. uh, if you if you have them, like go ask. There there's plenty of resources. Well, and I think there's two other things that kind of compound the hesitancy to ask a question. There's uh, there are, if we're being honest, a lot of dumb people who don't understand this, and then they're just talking the most and like doing backflips in front of <laughs> Lamborghinis and rapping. And so I think people see that, and then they see mainstream media kind of poo-poo it because, well, it is new, and if you're mainstream, you don't want anything new to actually be successful. Let's just be honest. And so if the mainstream media says it's not good, and then the people talking about it, at least the ones getting millions of views, really are kind of, to me, look like idiots. I think there is just this, you know, I mean, everyone's busy. There's just this filter where it's like, nope, I don't need to pay attention to that. Nope, I don't need to pay attention to that. The the thing that bothers me at this point, though, is that I still feel like there's a lot of that going around when Bitcoin isn't two years old anymore. Like, it's Mm. over a decade old, and I remember... I remember I wrote it off in like 2012. I really wish I wouldn't have, uh, <laughs> but I didn't in 2013 because I was like, wait, it still exists. Well, then there must mm. be something to this. Mm. Yeah. And that that's the thing is, uh, you know, I mean, there, there were gamers back in 2010 that were buying the graphics cards and mining with the mm-hmm. graphics cards to pay off the graphics card. Right. Like, and uh, a lot of them like sort of discover Bitcoin that way, but then dismissed it and then uh, came back in later. Uh, the thing is, you you really do have to put in the work to really learn what Bitcoin is. And a lot of people honestly aren't willing to put in that work. Uh, but now that there is inflation, there is sort of like social upheaval and all sorts of things going on in the world, um, you know, like it, it might behoove you to go and take a look at it because it, it does affect a lot of this stuff. Like uh, the inflation stuff that we were just talking about, um, that's the result of monetary policy. And if you don't understand what good monetary policy is supposed to be versus bad monetary policy, which essentially steals from everybody that saves their money, um, then then you you really don't get what what this how how this whole economy works or what you need to do to protect yourself against um, essentially what's uh what is like stealth uh, taxation without any representation mm-hmm. whatsoever uh so learning about that I, I i think would be a wise thing at this point and dismissing it out of hand especially given what has been happening the last uh 12 months um you know like that i don't think that's a good move like you you need to go learn about this and you need to right. understand that it'd be like dismissing there, the internet right eventually you're going to need to make a linkedin or something to get a job guys <laughs> like you need yeah, to learn the internet like that. <laughs> the, yeah it, it is sort of like it does remind me uh bitcoin reminds me of like internet back in like 93 94 mm-hmm. when everyone was sort of talking about it but no not very few people are actually on it that that's the stage we're at right now is mm-hmm. uh, you know uh there are the few people like michael saylor that are talking about it on like all, all sorts of uh you know TV shows and things like that, but ultimately, like uh, it's gonna come to the masses. And if, if you, if you know, I I would suggest that you go take a hard look at like asset prices, your investments, all of that, because they are very very leveraged at this point. Like uh, a lot of stocks have like insane PE ratios. A lot of bonds yield almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, real estate is like at five, 10 times like uh, annual salary, where it was like one year of salary, like 
50 years ago. So something is very off. And, um, and a lot of people are kind of noticing that. Uh, and, you know, they, a, a lot of hedge fund managers, VCs, you know, pension uh, managers and, uh, you know, institutions, they're, they're all going, okay, where do I get yield? Where, how, how am I going to deal with all of this stuff that's happening? Um, if they're asking those questions, y- you need to as well. Yeah. And before we get into that, I actually do want to have you tell people about your background a little bit. I mean, just to make it clear, if anything, that, you know, again, this isn't a gamer who started talking about Bitcoin, noticed he got a bunch of views and then became big. I mean, you're a real programmer, man. Like I looked through your your background here. (laughs) I've got to say, I mean, I don't know where you'd want to start. Like, I mean, like just tell people briefly, like maybe where are you from and what, what got you into programming? Yeah, I got into programming as a nine-year-old when uh, I, I saw like first like these computers. I, I didn't really even know what those were, but I, I begged my dad at that point, <laughs> hey, can you get me this computer? Can you get me this computer? And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe your listeners will enjoy this. That computer ended up being a Commodore 16. Now you might mm-hmm. be saying, oh, Commodore 64. No, the Commodore <laughs> 16. The 64 had all of the games. The Commodore 16 was sold at Toys R Us, and my dad decided to get me that one. And it, it literally only had like three games, one of which was Jack Attack, which I thoroughly enjoyed because it, w- it was actually like a graphics-based game. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two games that, that were on there were text-based games. And I had, uh, I had immigrated to the U.S. like a year before, so my English wasn't very good. So I, I didn't know what to do with those games, right? Like I, I couldn't play them. Uh, so I ended up playing Jack Attack a lot. But uh, eventually I was like, you know, what else can I do with this computer? So I, I, I learned some basic. My mom managed to find some teachers um, to teach me how to program. So that's that's how I got started. Um, programmed all through, you know, um, you know, elementary school, middle school, mm-hmm. high school. Uh, my second computer was an 8086 from Hyundai. They don't really make computers anymore, but back then they did. I had a 486 in high school. This was like the first of the uh, you know, 486 line uh, by Intel. I think it was 33 megahertz. Um, and you know, like I first job out of college was for a startup, um, and mm-hmm. it was programming. Uh, you know, a bunch of web services and things like that. Um, and I I did startups for. Uh, about 15 years, uh, you know, like I, you've got I, quite the yeah. roster of things you've worked on. I've got to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I've worked on everything, right? Like selling shoes online yeah. to like, uh, you know, programming, you know, electronic health records. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I saw know, that like, too. <laughs> like just uh, like all sorts of random stuff. I, I, I've done it all, right? Like I, I've tweaked like database queries. I've done like JavaScript op- optimization. I've done it all. Um, but yeah, I, I discovered Bitcoin like uh, back mm-hmm. at, uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, and yeah, I, I've been in it ever since pretty much. So I actually am curious, like what, what, what do you remember when you first heard of Bitcoin? Or, or is it like, like, you know, you had, but then you remember the time you took it seriously? Oh, I, I I remember the very first article that I read, and mm-hmm. uh, many many of you guys may be familiar with the site Slashdot. Um, it uh-huh. was it's a it's a geeky site. It's not as popular anymore. I think Hacker News is the place that most people go to now. But at least back then, it was like the place that I would check every day. Just you know, let's scroll through the stories. Um, 
who's being a patent troll, what new Linux distribution exists and stuff like that. Um, and you, you know, there, there's usually like graphics cards reviews and stuff like that for gamers as well. But the one story that I didn't know anything about, which is highly unusual, I usually at least know something about every story, was the story that said, Bitcoin has reached dollar parity. And mm-hmm. I was like, what does that even mean? I couldn't even parse the sentence, right? Because it's like, what does it mean to have dollar parity? Like, what it looks, it, it, <laughs> it, this Bitcoin thing grew to be the size of a physical dollar or something? I don't know. Um, so I looked into it and I found out that it's, uh, it's like, some internet nerd money or something, which immediately yeah. got me interested. And then I, I read about it and learned about it and found out about the 21 million limit. And that that's what got me hooked because I was like, oh, there's only 21 million. And I think there's like a human instinct to want to grab something scarce. And yeah. I'm sure all your listeners know about this, right? If you're if you're playing some online game or something, you want the absolute rarest thing. It yeah. doesn't matter. Like Even if it, it may is. not be, if the orange weapon may not even be as good as some of your purple weapons, but God, you're just so yeah. excited you got the orange one. Yeah, you you want the one of one, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you, want the, you want the rarest thing, even if it's not as good for you. That's the instinct that came over me, and uh, and that that's ultimately like a human instinct for things that are scarce. Um, so I ended up, uh, you know, trying to buy it. It uh, it was very difficult at the time. You had to. <laughs> yes, the only real place was uh, Mount Gox in Japan, which and- I hear went well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so you you had to transfer your dollars to an exchange in Japan, and that wasn't easy. You had to mm-hmm. use this other company called Dwala. And you had to like link your bank account to them and they would do like two small deposits that you had to confirm and that took like a week. And then you had to then like uh, connect it to your Mt. Gox account that you just opened and they, they had to do verification and AML KYC or something. And then and then you could transfer that money to Mt. Gox. And then after another week, then you can finally start trading. So I was like, ah, that's too much work. Let's not do it. So I could have bought it a dollar, yeah. but I didn't because it was way too annoying. Probably one of the biggest regrets of my life, but that's when I first heard about it. And you know, my story might be even dumber though. Like for sure it is, I think. When I heard about it in 2012, I don't even remember why I watched part of a YouTube video. I don't know what channel it was. I, I still don't know. But just like it was like probably some autoplay thing. And they're like, there's these gamers using their graphics cards to make money. And I had just gotten a high-end card. And I'm like, well, that sounds good to me. And so I looked into Bitcoin and I downloaded the Bitcoin QT wallet. And I had slow internet at our college at the time. They didn't upgrade it yet. So I just saw this bar not moving fast. <laughs> and I was just <laughs> like, something must be wrong with this app. It just, it won't sync to the network. Why is it taking so long? And I just deleted it and went away for a year. Yeah. Little did you know that that was the blockchain. Being yes. I didn't, didn't know what the like blockchain was. And, and so I came back in late 2013. Cause like I said earlier, like I was like, well, it still exists. So I, I should pro I mean, it, it sounded crazy, but if it's still here one year later and it's a crazy idea, I really got to see what this is. And then I read the Bitcoin white paper and I was just like, Oh, this could work. <laughs> like he really <laughs> seemed, whoever wrote this seems to have really thought this out. And it didn't mm. seem that complicated to me. It just seemed like there was Really, uh, and of course, behind the scenes it is, but really just a lot of thought put into how do we solve the problem of people copying, uh, you know, copying anything digital. And it, and, it, and to me, it really felt like they had um, really solved it. I mean, I, I guess this is a good time to ask this question, like in the most succinct way you can, and we've been dancing around it, like how would you describe what Bitcoin is if someone didn't know? 
Digital gold. Um, so it's it's digital in the sense that it's native to you know like bits and bytes that you 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 normally have on the internet. Um, but it's gold in the sense that it's decentralized. You don't need anyone's permission to go dig for gold. I could go dig for gold in my backyard right now. I'm probably not going to find it. Probably not. But I can do it. That there there's nothing really stopping me from doing that. Um, this is very different than the U.S. dollar. If you are not the Treasury Department and you produce your own $100 bill, you will get arrested because the Secret Service doesn't like that. You need permission in order to go and make that. Um, so that that's the main difference. It's, uh, it's decentralized digital money. Um, and it also happens to be perfectly scarce, which is something that we really haven't had. Um, and it's, In human uh, history, usually, like we yeah, haven't. It, it's, yeah, it, it's difficult for people to grasp because... Uh, you know, digital things uh, up until 2008, when Satoshi Nakamoto invented Bitcoin, um, there were only two classes of things. It was infinitely copyable things or centralized uh, but scarce things. So you, you had infinitely uh, copyable things like MP3s and movies mm-hmm. or whatever. You you get perfect fidelity every time you copy them. Uh, but with um, with uh, centralized scarce stuff, it's like World of Warcraft gold or swords or um, even online coupons and things like that. Some central party controls what's going on, um, and they they are the mm-hmm. sole producer of whatever it is. So um, the difference between uh, Bitcoin uh, and those things is that it's both decentralized and digital and scarce, which which we've never really had before. And that's uh, you know the easiest way to describe that is digital gold. Joachim Hagen writes in and he asks, I just want to openly ask, how do you think someone came up with the Bitcoin idea and why has it gained value so much since the early days? And I really invited simple questions like that. So I know how simplistic that is. Why, why has it gained value? It's, it's gained value because it's, uh, it, it performs its functions as money really, really well. Um, in my opinion, the, the reason why Bitcoin has gained so much of the value is because it is an excellent store of value. And this is one of the three functions of money. It's a medium of exchange, unit of account, and store of value. Um, thing about medium of exchange or mm-hmm. method of payment is that there's a lot of those on the market. There's you know, not only your credit cards and cash and checks and things like that, but there's also like Apple Pay, Google Wallet, Samsung Pay, and if you go to different countries, you get like WeChat in China, Octopus mm-hmm. Card in Hong Kong, uh, M-Pesa in Kenya and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of different sort of payment systems that are very fast and that, that work really, really well. Um, but uh, the, the thing that most people don't have, and this is largely due to sort of the economic policies of, uh, of a lot of governments, is a good store of value, um, a good way to store value over a long period of time. So traditionally, the only two things that really compete, well, three things that compete with Bitcoin on that front are real estate, stocks, and mm. gold. Um, and those those things go up in value uh, at a pretty good rate, and yeah. uh, and they store value over time pretty well. Um, most most people, the largest purchase that they ever make is their house, mm-hmm. and it tends to store value over time because land, as they say, they they're not really making any more of it, so it's it's very scarce. Uh, similar thing with stocks, unless the you know company issues more shares for some reason or something like that. Uh, but usually there's a justification for it. But the thing about those is that they they require a lot of investment in terms of time and research. Um, if you're buying a stock, you're going mm-hmm. to research like 400 stocks, right? Or 
Or, you know, maybe you're lazy, you end up using an index fund. This is what what's caused more or less the index fund bubble and things like that. Um, but there, there's also, you know, a lot of switching costs as well. Um, and certainly with real estate, there's oh, yeah. a lot of research. I'm dealing with it right do. now. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're using it as an investment property or whatever. So um, those things aren't very good as stores of value because um, they also have utility. With stocks, you're supposed to get a dividend. With, uh, with a house, you're supposed to get rent or right. you're supposed to be able to live in it or whatever. So there's, uh, you know, you're, you're essentially taking away the utility value and making, mm-hmm. you know, adding a store of value premium to those. Bitcoin is a pure store of value and gold served that purpose for a long time. It's just that there's uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, shenanigans that are going on with gold. Uh, so if you study the gold market, for example, uh, there's a lot of gold that doesn't exist that's floating out there in the market, and you might ask, how do they do this? Well, turns out <laughs> that this is uh, this. There's this thing called fractional reserve lending. So there's a bunch of gold vaults in the world, and uh, the really big ones are in London, um, mm-hmm. and I think there's one in India, and maybe one in Hong Kong. There's one in New York, uh, but they they have a lot of gold in their vaults, um, and you know the, the way people trade that gold is they. Um, you know, just sort of move it around on the ledger because to take physical yeah. delivery of gold is very expensive. You have to hire armed guards or whatever and ensure the tracking and all that stuff, which uh, nobody really wants to do. So they just keep it in the in the vault. So the bank vaults at some point were like, you know what? Uh, we have all this gold. Uh, we can go lend it out. And, and they do. They have lent out the gold. And at some point they go, okay, you know what? No <laughs> one's actually going to redeem this gold. So we're going to lend out more gold than that exists. And this is, this is how the first fractional reserve banks started. Mm-hmm. And this continues to be the case today. So there's a lot of gold, uh, you know, GLD on like, uh, you know, the NASDAQ or whatever. Yeah. Um, that, that's actually like, it, it, it's, uh, they're, they're trading gold that doesn't exist. It, it's, uh, it's what the vaults say exists, but like no one's really redeeming them. So they, we don't know how much they're fractional re- reserve lending, but they, uh, you know, it, it, they just sort of create gold that doesn't exist. So this expands the supply, sort of keeping the price of gold down. Um, what's different with Bitcoin is that because the transportation cost is so low, it's really essentially like, uh, you know, sending an email, it's very fast and it doesn't weigh anything. It doesn't have a physical location and things like that. Um, so it makes, uh, like possessing it and securing it also very, very cheap, uh, relative to something like gold, where you're going to want like, you know, steel enforced doors and like armed guards and motion detection machines and stuff like that. Um, Instead, uh, you you have, you know, as essentially a secret that you keep on a hardware wallet device or something like that. It's it's re- it's relatively pretty affordable. So, as a result of that, fractional reserve lending Bitcoin is very very difficult. And uh, and the companies that do um, know that anyone anyone can have a run at that quote unquote fractionally reserved bank at any time. So they they are motivated to not fractionally reserve very much if they do. And generally, it's considered unethical in the Bitcoin space. So as a result, what you get is a store of value that is very good. And this is what people have been looking for as a way, especially nowadays with inflation kind of running rampant and the dollar being such a poor store of value, um, as a way to store value over the long term. And you can, you can see that it's grown 
as a result, it's uh, I think on an annualized basis, something like 200% per year for the last 10 years. Um, and that that's a, that's an unheard of return in the financial world. But um, yeah, so anyways, and I think, you know, uh, the first article I did on my website long before I became, I don't even know if I call myself big now, but I guess, sub, you know, de- known by some in the gaming space is it was about Bitcoin. And the title of my article was actually, let me, it's pretty long. Let me actually make sure I get it right. Is what you must understand first before you can truly understand Bitcoin. Because I feel like another thing, and you just touched on about half a dozen of the things that I, that I touched on in it as well there. Um, like, I, I think a lot of the apprehension is there. It's almost like, and this is kind of, this is going to trigger some people that I may use this term. Like, it's almost like you need to be deprogrammed, honestly, mm-hmm. like to start actually taking Bitcoin seriously. Because all of these things you said, you know, like what makes a good money? And mm-hmm. then, and you said Bitcoin is digital gold. You said gold, mm-hmm. you know, store of value, gaining value over time, you know, deflate, you know, not inflationary, deflationary. I, I feel like just speaking for myself, um, I, you know, no judgment, but I do believe I'm a little bit younger than you, but, uh, <laughs> yes, but you like, are. it's like beaten into us in school mm-hmm. that the number one thing of money needs to be is easily given away. Like, and if you really <laughs> think about it for even just it's like the Bitcoin white paper made me just take five minutes to think about it. Mm-hmm. If you think about it for just five minutes, that's, Clearly not true. People want mm-hmm. what's rare. People want what gains value. And they trade things that lose value for things that gain value. This isn't even mm-hmm. like a monetary theory. This is common sense. You trade yeah. less value for more value. And for something to really last and gain popularity, it has to be perceived as something that will bring you value in the future, not lose you value. Otherwise, we'd all be using you know, the Brazilian, uh, what is it, real or something instead <laughs> of the U.S. dollar. And we wouldn't be, I mean, you know, I'm moving to Nashville. I can assure you the real estate market's doing quite well there. Like, yep. it's, you know, the houses would not be worth, they'd probably be worth about at least half as much as they are now. If if it mm-hmm. wasn't clearly half, most, half, I mean, maybe most of the reason someone might buy a house there is because they know it will acquire value. And mm. And I think one thing you touched on, and I might have heard you say this before in an interview, I've heard other people bring this up at the very least, is that in a world where Bitcoin is at least some sort of standard, maybe not everything, but something Mm -hmm. that you can go to easily, it might make it easier to save money for a lot of people because there's just less research involved. It's just, Mm -hmm. where do I store my money? Oh, there's a good stock. uh, You know, AMD seems like a good investment. Maybe I should put some (laughs) into that. That's okay. That's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. No one's saying stocks are going away. No one's saying uh-huh. real estate's going away. There's always going to be good deals, but maybe you're tired that night and you just want to mm-hmm. store it in gold mm-hmm. or a digital mm-hmm. gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is the thing. They, all of this, all of that time and effort that you put into researching and things like that, um, they're not going towards actually you producing something for civilization, right? Right. Using, Creating goods and services. The amount of hours I put into looking at houses recently, it's kind of fun, yeah. to be honest. But I mean, you know, but I I could have been making more videos for my supporters yeah. instead of looking at houses. 
And and this is the thing, like for a lot of richer people, if you know anyone that's really rich, mm-hmm. they spend way too much time <laughs> trying to keep their wealth. And they, this is this is the thing. These are some of the most productive people, you know, like, right, they, they, mm-hmm. they produce something that a lot of people like, they made a lot of money. And now to keep their wealth, they have to almost do a full-time job. In fact, there are entire things called family offices. I don't know if you know what those are. But family offices, which are basically investment arms of an entire family, right? Yeah. Like you might be like the Rockefellers or something like that. You have like billions of dollars and you want to make sure that you invest it. So you hire like 10 investment professionals mm-hmm. to make sure that the money stays. And they oftentimes they're, uh, you know, like LPs to venture funds and hedge funds. And, you know, they have an allocation to uh, various equities and real estate and things like that. They, it, it's a, it's a full-time job. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lot of time and effort that goes into that. Now, if instead of doing all of that and sort of like having a full-time job, just keeping your wealth, instead the wealth was kept for you just in one asset, like, like Bitcoin or something like that. And this did happen under the gold standard from mm-hmm. 1870 to 1910. Um, you have a lot more freedom to like go and yeah. make other things for everybody else. And the, the, on a per capita basis from 1870 to 1910, we had way more innovation than we did afterwards on a per capita basis because there was a lot more room for yeah. doing that. Once the Federal Reserve came and, um, you know, you, you had to work very hard to keep your wealth, um, it became this thing where a lot of people just kind of stopped producing after they had their one hit, right? Like, yeah. I made my money, now, now I have to keep it, so that's going to be my full-time job. Uh, which unfortunately is has happened to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, a personal example I can give is, you know, uh, the first things I mined were Litecoin. And I you know, would always make sure to put some of it into Bitcoin because I was just like, well, that seems like the default. So I should probably mm-hmm. use this as before I fully understood it, to uh-huh. be honest. And then I got into what, what was called Darkcoin that then became uh-huh. Dash. That actually, uh-huh. you know, say what you will about it, uh, um, I have a Dash jacket that I look at. <laughs> and it's, I know, it's funny, right? But you know what? I, I, I was $2 when I got into it. I, it was a very uh-huh. good decision, you know. But I did sell it in like, uh, I don't mm-hmm. remember, like 2018, 2019. Um, <laughs> that turned out to be an equally good decision too mm-hmm. <laughs> when I got into mm-hmm. it. And 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 I, I remember I had this little chart. I don't know why for fun I made this chart. You know, what am I making? What am I putting into my house? What are my assets? Just I kind of made like an asset monitoring Excel file for fun. And I had like 20 stocks and 10 different mm-hmm. cryptocurrencies. And eventually I, you know, especially when I got into this YouTube channel and podcasting, really taking off, it, it takes up so much of my time because it's everything. I'm building it, mm-hmm. I'm doing it all myself, planning, shooting, editing it. I didn't have time to worry about things anymore. And I and I sold off all of my altcoins simply because I was tired of paying attention to when they're going to go up. Like, And mm. I was just like, <laughs> the amount of time I take worrying about if this stock or this is going to go up, I'm tired. Like, I've got stuff to do. And I just don't want to mm. have that in the back of my head. Oh, should I have sold Monero at this time or not? I don't care anymore. Yeah. And, and I do wonder if people understand how much stress they're getting subconsciously from worrying about if their money's going to lose value if they don't do something with it. So much of, like you said, the time, even at middle class and even lower class spends worrying about if their money's in the right place. It's a, it is a profound waste of time. That's probably almost impossible to quantify. 
And I don't mm. see anyone make that argument, really. Like, you make that one a lot, but I haven't heard a lot of people make that. But it's a good point. Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's the thing that, that most people spend their time and money on. It, it, like, if I go into, like, these clubhouse rooms, uh, uh-huh. half the people are saying, oh, you know, should I get into trading and, you know, like, all these altcoins and stuff? I'm like, you have no idea how much of this you're go- is going to take over your life. Mm-hmm. And there's an opportunity cost here. If you're spending all of that time researching and trying to figure out like when the signal is to sell or buy or whatever, um, that's time taken away from you possibly like providing value elsewhere. So unless your trading is so good that you yeah. can make up for all and that. And some people it is, earn, but it's a very few amount to be honest, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like literally 1% of traders uh, yeah. versus the 99% that are the suckers and lose money and so on. So for me, like it's... Time is much better spent, um, like just going and working or, you know, doing whatever job, even working at McDonald's, whatever, right? Like going and earning money and then putting that into Bitcoin is a way easier way to accumulate wealth than, you know, like trying to trade and like play all these like zero sum games where Mm -hmm. there's a very good possibility that you might lose. There's actual value that you can add for sure by going and working and providing your labor or goods or services that you can produce in the market, um, there, there's a lot of that out there. So why not do that and use that to, you know, add money to your stack? Yeah. Let's just admit it. Nobody wants to pay full price for those Windows 10 professional keys. But shopping for deals on eBay can be a risky process that wastes your time, which is why you should simply just go to cdkoffers.com. cdkoffers.com offers an assortment of Windows software products, Steam games, Origin games, Uplay games, and even games on Xbox and PlayStation. Help out Moore's Law's Dead and save yourself some money by using offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Windows software and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. Use CDK offers today. Um, Sebastian F. writes in and asks, okay, this will probably be a dumb question, but I know very little about crypto. Given it would take ages to mine the entirety of the remaining Bitcoin, what will be the actual usable supply when mining for it will essentially stop? Also, how much of it is known to have been lost, destroyed? And bonus question, why must some coins be mined and others like Ripple are instantly available. Again, I apologize about these super basic questions. And then he has another question at the end, which is, what do you see as the biggest misconception by the general public with regards to the Bitcoin blockchain? And I would say I saw a few, but I'm glad he asked the question. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a bunch of questions there. Let me answer the last one first. Biggest misconception. Biggest misconception is that this is technology, not money. Um, and those mm. two things have a profoundly different properties. So um, for a lot of people, especially in technology, they tend to view everything through a technological lens. So um, for example, if you're getting a new graphics card, you want mm-hmm. the one that you know is faster, you know, has more features or uses this new protocol or new bus or you know, fan design or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Like bells and whistles matter in technology. Features matter in technology. Um, And that's uh, how a lot of people tend to view crypto. It's like, okay, well, Bitcoin does this, but this other coin does this, 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 and this. 
Um, and they don't they don't realize that it the the way to evaluate this is not as a technology. It's not mm-hmm. a Facebook. It's not MySpace. It's not the Model T. It's not any of that. It's money, and money yeah. has very very different properties. It is not about bells and whistles or features or something like that. So let me let me just give you sort of like a thought experiment to chew on a little bit. So if you think about the U.S. dollar, it is essentially uh, created by the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they control how much um, you know mon- money supply there is, and they've generally been expanding at about a seven percent clip since 1959. Um, they've also added a lot of features to the U.S. dollar, right? The ACH clearing system came on in the 70s, so that mm-hmm. you know banks could settle with each other within three days and so on. Um, they're talking now about central bank digital currencies, which would add even more features to the dollar, something like you know uh, maybe like uh, you know. 20 minute settlement, something to that effect. That would be uh, nice. <laughs> transactions, uh, you know, like they they could uh, make it available on your phone, and you know you can you can uh, use um, your phone to pay for things or something like that. They they could make all of that available. Now, would that still make people want to keep their money in dollars? I would say no, and no. the reason is because they can still expand it whenever they want. They could add all of the features that all of these other things have. It wouldn't matter. It's not about the features. The thing that matters most for money is credible long-term scarcity. And the US dollar simply does not have that. And if you look at the history of money, this has always been the case. So salt used to be used as money. This is where mm-hmm. we get the word salary. Right, salt, sal. You know that that that's where we get that. Uh, but salt is no longer used as money. Why? Because people figured out ways to mine tons of it at a time. <laughs> right? Like there were all these salt mines and stuff like that. So they figured it out. And as soon as the market flooded with salt, well, you can't really use it as money because it doesn't have credible long-term scarcity. Similar thing with glass beads, wampums, <laughs> rye stones. The only thing that has sort of like kept up in that regard is gold. And it's been used as money for something like 6,000 years because no one's figured out ways to go produce large amounts of it. In fact, Not without expending a ton of energy, at least. Right, right, right. And and there was an entire science, quote unquote, in the mm-hmm. Renaissance called alchemy, where people were trying to make gold, right? Because mm-hmm. it was that valuable. Um, the, and that's why gold has kept its value or, or kept its uh monetary property because it has that credible long-term scarcity. Now, Bitcoin over the last 12 years has had that credible long-term scarcity. The US dollar um, has really only been fiat money since 1971 when Nixon cut the ties of convertibility for dollars to gold. So it's really only 50 years old as a fiat currency. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is 12 years old, but it also trades 24-7, 365. So in, in a sense, Bitcoin um, is getting to getting closer to the dollar in terms of uh, age. Now, all of these other coins, right, the one that came out last week or something like that, um, none of them have that credible long-term scarcity. You just can't because you're not old enough. <laughs> they, you haven't gone through all of mm-hmm. the different, you know, like sort of trials and tribulations that would prove uh, that you can last a long time. Bitcoin has, it's, and it's lasted 12 years. So the longer it lasts, the longer, the more credibility it gets, right. the higher the price goes. Um, whereas with the, all of this other stuff, like Ethereum has a crazy monetary policy that goes all <laughs> over the place. Um, like, whatever Vitalik wants is their uh, yeah, monetary policy. It's essentially policy. whatever Vitalik wants. And, the, and that's why I call them like essentially 
you know, digital fiat currencies, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not very different than fiat in the sense that there's some central controller. But with Bitcoin, you have 12 years of history, right? Mm-hmm. Well, of it continuing that 21 million limit. It, it was known at the beginning and it's been there the entire time. That credible long-term scarcity is what matters. And it has a net, there, there's a network effect and all, the, all of this other stuff that goes into it. But this is why we have to look at Bitcoin differently than these other ones. Now the the guy had a few other questions. Well, yeah, like about, one was, um, uh, mm-hmm. what about uh, mining? Like when you run out of mm-hmm. coins, which is it's just you pay a transaction fee, and that and, and already miners are getting quite a bit of the money they mine in a block is now transaction fees for sending the coin. Right, right. So it's right now six point two five bitcoins for the block subsidy. This is the new bitcoins that are coming into mm-hmm. the market, and uh, about 0.75 to one point two five bitcoins in transaction fees. These are fees that uh, people that are sending transactions on the network pay the miners, and that ends up being about 0.75 to one point two five. So already something like fifteen percent of miner revenue is already mm-hmm. in fees. A couple of halvings from now, so about seven years from now, I would guess that it's going to be uh, the the fees are going to overtake yeah. the block subsidy. At which point, you know that that that's how it'll work. It's it's what we would call the fee market. And if you think about it from an economic perspective, every time you inflate the currency, which essentially um, Bitcoin is being inflated to some degree every every ten minutes. Uh, a small amount, but it is being inflated. So currently, it's there's about 18 and a half million bitcoins, mm-hmm. but every 10 minutes, 6.25 new bitcoins come into existence. Um, you could sort of think of that as a tax on all the holders, right? Because you're being diluted just a little bit every mm-hmm. time new blocks are found. So in a way, the holders are paying uh, for about 85% of the security of the blockchain, whereas the rest, the 15%, are being paid by the people that are actually transacting. Um, as Bitcoin ages, what you're doing is taking uh, the burden of securing the blockchain from the holders. And instead of extracting value from the holders, you're making the people that are actually transacting pay for it, which I think is a much more just way of doing things. Instead of taxing uh, through inflation, you're taxing right. the people that are consuming the resource, which is the blockchain. So, Well, you've said that a few times, too. I think we yeah. need to jump into that just for like, you know, 30 mm-hmm. seconds, like, Thinking about how inflation is in many ways a tax on the middle class, effectively. I mean, they they add more money every year, and your money has less value. And you go, no, it doesn't. Okay, well, games are more expensive. Your graphics cards are more expensive. (laughs) Gas is more expensive. And housing is more expensive. Mm -hmm. So as long as you don't want to play anything, live anywhere, or travel, (laughs) you're right. Things are the same price, I guess, in your world. But like inflation's real. And it's created by the government, and it tends to go to the people closer to the top first, and they don't feel it as hard as you do. Like, you can say it's not a problem, but I don't know. There's a lot of—I would disagree that it, it is effectively a way—you know, they didn't raise taxes to pay for this bailout. Yeah, they they did. <laughs> they're just <laughs> they taxing did. you a yeah, different it, way. It's, uh, inflation is a stealth, is stealth taxation. It's taxation without representation. At least with like explicit taxes, Congress actually has to pass a law mm-hmm. and they have to actually and go elected. and collect it. Yeah. With, uh, with inflation, what you end up getting is their ability, they, they can just sort of tax without any legislation whatsoever, without any transparency whatsoever. They just sort of do it. Mm-hmm. And we find out about it much later. And it's not only U.S. citizens that are getting no. uh, screwed as a result no, of this. No, 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 no. Because, 
like at least we have the right to vote, right? Like yeah. we, we theoretically put the people in office that make these decisions that uh, establish the Federal Reserve and the Fed chairman uh, uh, apparently reports to Congress or, and, and, and things <laughs> like that. But uh, but you know if you're if you're somebody in like Nigeria or North Korea that's using dollars to store value and plenty of them are, yeah. believe me, right? They they don't have any say in U.S. politics. Yet mm-hmm. they are being diluted, right? They, their dollar is not worth as much, and it uh, and it's kind of crazy to think about it. But the the currency that's most desired by North Koreans is the U.S. dollar. <laughs> like, despite thinking of U.S. people as like you know imperialist scum or something like that, they want dollars because mm-hmm. they know this is hard money. Uh, at least, or it's harder money their, than other alternatives. Yeah, uh, than 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 what they what they're able to get. Um, and unsurprisingly, these are the people that get screwed the most. So every time inflation happens in the U.S., right? Every time the central bank expands by like a couple trillion dollars because mm-hmm. the government doesn't have uh, that much in tax revenue, so they buy end up buying the treasuries and give essentially print that money into existence. You're you're not just stealing from everybody in the U.S. Actually, most of the money that you're stealing is abroad, right? Like it's all yeah. of these central banks that are holding treasuries as reserve. It's all of these uh, people in poorer countries that are using the U.S. dollar as their store of value. You're stealing from them, mm-hmm. and that is profoundly immoral. And in any other uh, century, this would be called tribute, right? It's, it's, <laughs> you could, like, yeah, you can make the argument. It's a way of yeah, just getting tribute. It is because because uh, you know they're being forced to pay for the excesses of whatever we're doing. This is exactly what the Roman government used mm-hmm. to do. This was why Rome was so rich. They would extract tribute from all of these cities. And uh, and and basically Rome was, uh, you know, very decadent as a result. And uh, all these other places were very poor. Um, and, the, and ultimately what ends up happening is that those places enter into hyperinflation way faster than the U.S. does. And, mm-hmm. you know, even someplace like Canada, like I, I, uh, someone was showing me a picture of how much meat costs in Canada. Um, and they showed me like a 1.3 kilogram thing of ribeyes, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is about, you know, two, two and a half pounds of ribeye, yeah. 60 Canadian dollars, which is kind <laughs> oh of like God. insane. And they, they were also saying, yeah, and the butter costs eight bucks. Um, so oh my like God. inflation is happening. It happens yeah. uh, more at the edges. We're more at the center. Uh, if, if you're if you're in the U.S., you're much more at the center, and you are uh, because the U.S. is able to export inflation because of the demand for dollars abroad and so on. Um, so you're you're seeing places like Turkey have like twenty percent, uh, you know, interest rates at their banks and things like that. They're mm-hmm. they're going to enter hyperinflation soon. You see places like Nigeria where the naira is like uh, diluted by fifty percent or something like that over the last year. You know, they they're going to enter hyperinflation. All of these places are going to enter hyperinflation first because they're using <laughs> the dollar as a store of value, which is a very crappy store of value. Um, but it's better than using a lot of other currencies, and that's why they right, don't want right. it. And, and they, because the dollar has this exorbitant privilege, we're going to probably feel it absolutely last. Mm-hmm. But 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 it's happening. We're, we're even seeing it in lumber and computer chips, graphics cards, and everything else. All of that is happening. And uh, and at some point, once, uh, once that cycle kind of gets cr- triggered, while well, all of the prices go up, um, and this 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 happened in the 70s, like where prices were yeah. going up significantly. 
Um, and you know, we're we're probably going to enter that at some point. It's it's difficult to tell exactly when, but you can't keep spending trillions of dollars without zero effect on the economy. The economy adjusts, and there's a new equilibrium that will happen. And um, you know, if you're if you're if you're not prepared for that, then it's it's going to be pretty rough times for you. I mean, yeah, I, I just tell people be mentally prepared for everything to be twice as expensive in ten years. Like, I think mm. that's not even ten years, man. I, probably I, I not even ten years. I'm much. trying to, uh, I'm trying to be in the middle of like mm. you know people like just taking it and um, mentally preparing themselves. You look at the prices of something in the early '80s to the late '60s. It's yeah, they doubled. I mean, a lot of things got vastly more expensive. Um, you know, another thing. Uh, that I think can be part of the misconceptions. Morblar, Morblar writes in and asks, what do you do with the sluggishness and the high cost of Bitcoin transactions? And I would actually, I wrote down, I would make the argument that if you're finding Bitcoin transactions sluggish or expensive, you're using an outdated app or method to send it, honestly, at this point, <laughs> is my opinion. I, it's a bit harsh, but I, I don't know. It's like instant for me. And most websites have a way of telling if the transaction is going to confirm ahead of time, just like a credit card, by the way, guys. Mm. And it's instant, even without using the Lightning Network. And if you use the Lightning Network, it's it is it's so quick. I don't I don't. Mm -hmm. You just have to use it. Yeah, I, I mean, the person's probably talking about on-chain confirmations um, and that taking like 10, 20, 30 minutes sometimes and, and during high fee environments much longer. Um, but I mean that that's um, that's part of the design. This this the, you have to understand that the blockchain is a uh, is a community resource, and every node that runs it has to have the entire blockchain in order to validate the whole thing. And if you make uh, you know the the size of the blocks too big, so you could fit more transactions and so on, it's a tax on everybody in the system that's actually self sovereign and validates the ledger on their own. Um, but that said, like the thing is, like there uh, w there already are lots of layer two solutions like Lightning that you mm -hmm. just uh, mentioned. Um, there's also, I think, a possibility that we'll we'll get a lot of other companies that are um, that are going to settle in Bitcoin. Um, we know, for example, Mastercard and Visa are looking heavily into Bitcoin right now. Um, and the thing is, both those companies they settle in like 40 different currencies already, right? Like they they settle yeah. in the dollar, the euro, the yen, the yuan, and many others. Um, all all they have to do is turn on a switch and say, all right, we'll we'll also settle in Bitcoin. Bam! Now, now, now you can use like uh, you know your credit card to uh, settle everything in Bitcoin, and you're all good. Um, like there, there are many things like that where uh, the the financial infrastructure that already exists can sort of like slide the dollar out and slide the slide Bitcoin in, and you would uh, more or less have uh, you know a smooth transition from one to the other. Because at some point, if prices are going up fast enough in the dollar. Um, no one's going to want dollars, right? Like th mm -hmm. this is kind of what happens. The, the number Venezuela. one thing Bitcoin needs to be, I think, is something mm -hmm. that is deflationary. And then the number two thing is stable and decentralized. That's it. You have to have mm -hmm. a reason to want it. With, for good mm -hmm. or for worse, by the way, the coin that gains the most value and is the most stability, that's what people are going to buy even if mm -hmm. in some idyllic world, some other thing with all these features could maybe you argue theoretically do that. It's like, but they're not Bitcoin. That is what mm -hmm. Bitcoin's doing. And after that, the speed is so much less important on the base layer than mm -hmm. just making it stable. Your your money can't have bugs. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> you can't move fast and break things when people's money is at stake. And that's the unfortunate uh, reality that we've seen from like a lot of Ethereum bugs and things like that. Like people lose like millions of dollars uh, because, you know, uh, oh, whoops. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> like we, we, we forgot to patch that. Um, so... Yeah, uh, Bitcoin, um, I think, can be that settlement layer. And, you know, it's more important that it's hard money and it's absolutely scarce. Um, Again, that long-term credible scarcity is what makes money valuable. And if you lose that in any way um, Mm -hmm. by centralizing it and things like that, then then it's going to be a worse money. And that's not a good trade-off. Well, and, you know, one thing I've heard before that I think is a good point is, if something's valuable, if people want it, as long as they know it will always be there and be stable, they'll find a way to transact it, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the 10-minute confirmation time, really, this is more of like a an argument I heard mostly in 2014. That was when all the confirmation mm-hmm. time wars were, I would argue. Like, it's... It is arguably instant just as much as a credit card is already. I'm not going to get into the technical reasons why. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 10-minute the confirmation is, it. There, there's just ways we can go about it where it is basically instant. And those ways are more efficient than trying to do it at the base level. Because if you think about it, this 10-minute confirmation time, like I don't know how big the blockchain is now for Bitcoin. I think like 250 gigabytes maybe. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's at 300. I don't know. Um, but if you, I don't know what Ethereum's at, <laughs> I think it's at like 10 terabytes, terabytes yeah. or something, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so if you think about it, who has room for 300 gigabytes? Well, most people now, actually, it's conceivable mm-hmm. that because we only have like, what is it? Like one megabyte box, mm-hmm. you know, arguably bigger because of Segwit. Not going to get into that either. Well, but, what, what, what you store on disk is definitely more than one <laughs> because yeah, it, it was a box size increase. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. but Hard drives are kind of catching up with it. And because we've limited it, that means it's conceivable. I think phones will be fast enough in a few years to just run a full bit. Well, I think there, you, there's already, already are. a phone. Yeah, they're already yeah, are. Yeah, the Exodus phone, I think, uh, by HTC, uh, they, they run a full Bitcoin node on one of those. Yeah, so you can run a full node that is helping keep the network honest on a phone, meaning there's so many nodes keeping the network decentralized. With Ethereum, it went to one terabyte. Well, okay, well, now most gaming PCs can maybe handle that if they put an extra hard drive in. <laughs> and then you go to two, 10. At a certain point, there's like 20 people who are actually holding Ethereum nodes, and that's not decentralized. And the oh, decentralization- it's, it's much less than 20. I think uh, the archival nodes, I think there's like maybe one or two in the entire world. It's kind of horrible. <laughs> that's worse than the central banking system, I would argue. Like, Yeah, it is. It is. It is. And it, uh, like no one knows like how many Ethereum there are and things like that. It's, uh, it's a complete technical mess. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you want to answer this. I-, mm-hmm. I what do you think is going to happen to Ethereum over the next year? I, I, I'm wondering if, because you consult on this stuff, so I wonder if you'd say. Yeah, I, it, hard to say because um, they're, they're getting a fresh supply of new people that are coming in um, because mm-hmm. they're very good at marketing. And this is something that Ethereum has been good at from the very beginning. They're very good at uh, raising up hopes and getting people to believe in the, uh, their newest narrative and so on. Um, and right right now, their thing is NFTs and DeFi. I think th- those are the two sort of narratives going on uh, Ethereum. I do think that there is an NFT bubble. So at some point, it'll <laughs> pop and yeah. that's going to completely go away. 
Um, uh, and you know, like DeFi, I think there, there's a pretty big bubble there as well. Um, you know, and once those things are no longer really there, um, you know, that, that'll take a lot of the transactions off of, uh, Ethereum and, uh, you know, they're also transitioning to Ethereum 2.0. I mean, they'll, they'll probably be around, but, um, I, I don't think their performance against Bitcoin, uh, will be that great. <laughs> so um, that that's been the case with every altcoin. Like if if you look at like a five year chart, Bitcoin against almost anything, um, they all do pretty horribly, um, and for good reason because Bitcoin is sound money and all of these things are not. Well, and this is you know I can't pretend to have paid much attention to it for the past few years. I used to pay a little attention to Ethereum, but I know they're trying to migrate to proof of stake, and they're going to mm-hmm. do something called sharding, which as far as I may you know I'm not. I, I study mechanical engineering, not anything having to do with computer science. But my understanding mm. is they're going to basically have this like branching off blockchains that then remerge every now and then. And that's how they'll spread out all of the, you know, terabytes of data being used. It sounds really complicated and hard to do. Um, like it is. <laughs> do you think they're going to successfully migrate to proof of stake and sharding? Uh, I don't know. Um, that's a that's a really good question, and it really depends on your definition of success. Will they have some product that exists? Probably. Will it work well? Probably not. Um, you know, sharding itself is, from a computer science perspective, extremely difficult because you're you're taking a giant database, which is essentially Ethereum's blockchain, and putting it into smaller silos, um, and it works fine within a silo uh, because mm-hmm. it's smaller, and you get you get more throughput and stuff. But uh, as long as you have two different silos and you have to figure out how those interact, it gets it gets much more complicated, and that's what they're trying to work through and figure out how to do. Uh, but you know, like this is what I'll say about Vitalik. Like he he was like 19 years old when he thought of Ethereum and stuff, and everybody sort of like says he's a genius or whatever. I've seen his code. He's not he's not a genius. Thing is, like his tendency is to be um, sort of like the programmer that's just out of college, and I've I, I've uh, managed a lot of them over my career as a programmer. Um, and their their tendency is very much like, oh, you know what? I can do something better, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go create my own thing. I'm not gonna. It's look somewhat at commendable, you know, trying to do something better and bigger. Yeah, yeah, uh, but they they have like zero respect for like uh, the hardening that like putting something out in production does. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they're like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make my own thing, and that that's been his his thing the entire time, right? Like you look at a lot of design choices in Ethereum. A lot of those things are the same way, and I'll I'll give you just one small example. Okay. So uh, for example, um, Bitcoin has an address format. It was at least back then it was. Uh, uh, base 58, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, th- this is the addresses that start with a one or a three. Um, and it's uh, upper and lowercase letters, except for zero, L, uh, uh, capital O, and one other one, which I can't remember. But it's uh, it- it's a bunch of letters and numbers, and it kind of looks like gobbledygook. But there's something at the end that is essentially a checksum. And that checksum exists so that if you mistranscribe it, right? Like yeah. you turn a lowercase k into an uppercase k by accident or something like that. Those elaborate Bitcoin addresses that I know anyone who first gets into Bitcoin is scared to type it in wrong. <laughs> you can't, right? You can't type it in wrong. It won't let you really. Almost any app yeah, won't yeah. let so you. So if you, if you try to type it in wrong, 
if you type it in wrong and get it wrong, um, you know the the checksum is sort of your validator. So the wallet knows exactly uh, right away that hey, you entered this one. Can you check everything? Mm-hmm. And then you can go over it and actually check it again. Um, so that checksum exists for a very good reason. Vitalik, in all his wisdom, decided, you know what? I'm going to ditch this base 58 format, and we're going to do these uh, Ethereum ex- addresses. And if you have an Ethereum address, you know that it starts with 0x. And it's a bunch of uh, pseudo-hexadecimal or something like that. It's it's very hard to quantify. But, uh, of course, he left out the checksum in the address. So if you mistype a single letter or a number... It goes like no wallet knows that it, there's something wrong. So a lot of Ethereum has essentially gone like missing because people type the address wrong and there's no way to, uh, you know, get those back. Uh, and, and like, this is the sort of thing I'm talking about. These are horrible This is very decisions. basic. Like, can you imagine yeah. if your bank account, you put the wrong number in and not only did it not go to the wrong account, it just burned your U.S. dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 design choices that a new grad would make, and and he I think he dropped out of college, so he maybe new grad is being too generous for him. But like it, it's just kind of like stuff that any experienced software engineer would know. Okay, that's not a good idea. Like he does anyway, and sharding is very much like that. Proof of stake is very much like that. All of this stuff has a lot of. Very good reasons not to do. There's a mm-hmm. reason why you don't see it in other places. But he he thinks he's a genius because everyone tells him he's a genius because you know, like he created Ethereum and you know, there's you know, it, it's got a market cap of however many billion dollars. So therefore, he must be a genius, and therefore he you know he can do no wrong. This is this is the sort of cult of Ethereum that really rankles me because as a I software can tell. engineer. <laughs> It's like, okay, but I understand. Guys, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't think he knows what he's doing. Well, I mean, all I can say is when I look at the size of the Ethereum blockchain and you know these ambitious things they're trying to do, it's like, okay, I, I'm not gonna risk my money in that though, because I know, mm. and I don't want to make any bets because it's made it this far. But I, I just don't want to be there. If it, I, I honestly, truly think. It's conceivably possible there will just be one month at some point where all of a sudden the Bitcoin, I mean, the Ethereum blockchain just disintegrates. Like something Mm -hmm. goes wrong or like the transition to sharding just breaks it. And it's like, I just, I'm not putting my money in that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So so Pipe Ben writes in with a pretty good question, I think. And he says, very rarely is the first version of a new technology the last or best version how will Bitcoin compete with innovators that improve on all of its core properties while also maintaining decentralization and security? What qualities would you have to see in an alternative to consider it over Bitcoin? And I brought this one up because I know you don't even like making the Facebook MySpace argument, which, I mean, really, it's not a direct comparison. That's fair. But I think people see Bitcoin and they go, well, that must be the MySpace. What's going to be the Facebook? And they forget about beans. Bitcoin, uh, Bitgold, flues.com. You know, there were attempts to make something like Bitcoin all through the 90s and early 2000s, guys. Bit, uh, I think I would make the argument that Bitcoin is the Facebook and what you're looking at with Ethereum is Google+. Plus. Like there's been MySpaces before Bitcoin. But 
I don't know. How would you answer that question? Yeah, I mean, this is, again, sort of looking through the lens of technology instead of money. The, the one property that's most important is not something that you can just will into existence. And that's credible long-term scarcity. You can't just throw that in as a feature of a new blockchain because ultimately what yeah. you need to do is last longer. <laughs> and Bitcoin's already lasted 12 years. You ain't going to catch up. Now, I mean, maybe there's uh, some some other way that you can, um, you know, gain credibility about that in some weird form somehow. I, I can't really even think of it at, in, in like a metaphysical sense, but maybe, maybe there is. If, if there is, then it'll, it, it, it's going to have to be something like crazy different and crazy, like at least mm. orders of magnitude, uh, you know, better uh, than, than Bitcoin. I haven't seen anything that's even like 5% better than Bitcoin. So there, there you go. In terms like, of the uh, principles you believe matters, right? Like yeah, so decentralization, yeah. sta stability. Yeah, and, and you can't just throw on decentralization as a feature either. If you create it, it's by nature centralized, right? You created it. You're the single point of failure and so on. Uh, and we've seen this with a lot of Bitcoin forks. It's like, well, we have Bitcoin's history, therefore we're decentralized. No, you're not. As soon yeah. as you, you, you've taken it over... You know, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, and Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Diamond, and many others. Like they, they end up, you know, completely centralized. Like decentralization is very hard to gain and very easy yeah. to lose. So, you know, ultimately, like uh, you know, saying, oh, there's going to be a new blockchain that has decentralization and all these additional features. First of all, it doesn't matter, and second of all, it's not going to be decentralized. Um, and it, and that, I mean, that's and I think there's reality. some luck involved, right? And in like mm -hmm. that Bitcoin was created by people that aren't in charge of it. That's something you can't just duplicate. And I know a lot of altcoin projects are like, in the, here's the 10-year plan for the developers stepping away from the project so it's decentralized. And it's like, but it just never seems to happen. And if mm -hmm. they do, someone else just hijacks it and makes themselves the new god of that currency. I saw that right. happen with Dash, honestly. Like the, <laughs> that was one that I like as the developer kind of did it as an experiment and then stopped working on it. But then this new thing just shows up and becomes the new kings of that altcoin. And it's because like, if you're not the original one, if you're not Bitcoin with that history, the only way to really keep getting known is proof of news, just throwing out news constantly. And so... I'm not, I think it could be possible for something to pop up with the tenants of Bitcoin that also has other features, but there's no incentive for them to survive in the short term without proof of news. And the only thing that gets you proof of news is a bunch of scammers basically running it, is the argument yeah. I would make. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, you have to have a centralized entity to create the news in the first mm -hmm. place. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a self-defeating thing. Bitcoin had almost an immaculate birth, and mm -hmm. um, and you're not going to be able to replicate that. I'm sorry. Carbon Cry writes in and asks, what would both of you say to the people being outraged by how much crypto and blockchain technology is killing our planet by causing global warming, et cetera, et cetera? I know it's mostly a bullshit concern, but you know, there are people who really think crypto is hugely damaging to our environment or whatnot. How would you answer this question? I think it's been great for the environment and they don't realize how like power generation and things like that work. Everything is optimized for availability. If you think about it uh, with your house, if suddenly you didn't have power for a few hours, you would call the power company and say, what the heck's going on? They, uh, so what the power company does is they, uh, they generate enough power for peak demand. So um, you know, recently in Texas, we had this 
you know, like winter storm and things like that, there was not enough power to supply. Mm-hmm. And that's considered a huge disaster because, you know, the the power grid basically didn't have the capacity for um, the peak demand that we actually had. Um, so ger- the design of a power grid is such that you're, you're supposed to produce way more than is needed mm-hmm. so that you're continuously supplying, uh, you know, all these places with power because oftentimes these are in hospitals and things like that where, mm-hmm. you know, there's like life support equipment. So it's, it's more important that you have the power available than that it gets consumed. So what ends up happening in uh, the electrical grid is that there's a lot of places where you kind of burn off power. You waste energy. And yeah. guess what? They just throw these it away. Are, yeah, you just throw it away. Um, and, and the thing is, these are exactly the places where the Bitcoin miners go. And take that energy, and instead of having that energy essentially thrown away, you're using it for mining and uh, securing the Bitcoin network. Now, how does this help the environment? Well, it subsidizes essentially a lot of renewable energy that's coming into play. So, for example, hydroelectric dams have enormous capacity. They 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 can generate lots and lots mm-hmm. of electricity. The problem is that nobody really likes to live near a dam, and for good reason. You might get flooded if the dam breaks or something like that. Uh, so, if you if you're living kind of far away from the dam, uh, while the dam has to supply the electricity to that city, it's that transmission. You lose a lot of power yeah. and. You, you end up having to charge a lot of money because you have to also build the infrastructure to go in between and so on. Um, and uh, ultimately, what, what, ha- what ends up happening is that most of the capacity of, or a large portion of the capacity of the electricity that's generated by the hydroelectric dam doesn't end up getting used. So guess what? Bitcoin miners come, and this is happening all over China. They, they come and take that extra electricity. Now mm-hmm. the dam is a, is more profitable because they're getting extra revenue that they would have just burned off, right? Like that, that they wouldn't have used at all. Um, and uh, similar things with wind farms and solar uh, panels and things like that. You're, because uh, the electricity generation is intermittent and so on, they're able to, uh, you know, they like solar panels generate way more energy during mm-hmm. the day than, you know, and none at night. So what ends up happening is that when they have excess electricity, they're able to pipe it into these Bitcoin miners. And now you, because you can sell to the Bitcoin miners where, where no one else would want it, now you can subsidize, uh, you, you, you're making more profit. The time to profitability for all of these green energy initiatives are much faster. So you, you end up subsidizing all of these because my, Bitcoin mining is portable. You could bring it to the mm-hmm. place, and that that's a unique. You can't property. bring a city to a power plant, like well, no, you, no. not quickly. <laughs> yeah, and like for a long time, the only thing that could like uh, take a lot of energy away, uh, and like was extremely energy intensive, was aluminum processing. And mm. uh, and if you know about that, the energy industry, uh, pretty much wherever there was a lot of excess electricity, that's where aluminum plants would pop up. Because uh, it, it was just so energy intensive, uh, but but now with uh, with Bitcoin, you know, it, it, it's a lot easier to uh, absorb a lot of that electricity. Now, no one was uh, talking about like, uh, oh, you know, aluminum production is very bad for the environment, <laughs> like uh, forty years ago. Uh, but they're they're only doing that because you know mainstream 
journalists don't know what the hell they're talking about with respect to how energy is used or what what the capacity is or whatever. They just go, okay, well, Bitcoin takes this much energy, and you know that's as much as this city or this country or something like that. They they have no idea how it works or why all this excess energy is generated and what what would happen to that energy if the Bitcoin miners weren't there. Um, and so they 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 have no understanding of the actual economics or the market. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people believe that they just think, okay, well, you know, this bit of energy is the same as this other bit of energy that I'm using to, you know, right. power the lights on in my house. And it's like, no, they're not equivalent. One would have been, you know, like uh, wasted in, uh, unless it was used. Um, yours is being demanded and you're paying good money for it. And that's why they built the entire plant for you. So if anything, you're, the fact that you need lights on in your house is a much worse thing for the environment than Bitcoin mining ever will be. Um, and th this, it, it just rankles me because uh, it's a very dishonest and completely stupid argument that a lot of environmentalists make about that. Well, and I don't even know how many environmentalists are doing it so much as it's an easy article title. Bitcoin now uses the energy of Norway. They, everyone's going to click on that. You're going to get clicks. You'll get some environmentalists who don't read past the headline, frankly, mad. And you'll get everyone, you know, spamming that in the comments. Well, it's killing the environment. And, you know, I think I think there's an argument you could be made that if Bitcoin somehow would have popped up in the 70s when we didn't really use, or I don't know, maybe the 50s is a better way to put it, before we really used any renewable energy. And yeah, maybe it would have been worse, but Bitcoin's coming online in a time where Green energy is the cheapest energy. And if you, like you said, if you actually look at the energy being used in any of these mining farms, it's in Iceland, it's in the Pacific Northwest, it's in places with a lot of solar. It's it's in, it's almost all mining firms I've seen are next to renewable energy and they're making it more profitable to innovate renewable energy as well because that's already the cheapest one like i don't think any mining firm is just like god we've got to find where they're using coal because coal is so cheap no <laughs> one's doing that they're going next to hydroelectric hydroelectric plants and and i've actually I know of several instances where a dormant hydroelectric plant was turned back online for miners and then started using some of the excess energy with no emissions to power a town like i really think mm -hmm. You could make the argument that this will just cause more innovation in green energy over time. Well, of course it will, because they're 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 more profitable. You have a, you have another revenue source. I mean, if if you can sell to more people and like uh, sell sell for you know two cents what you would have gotten for zero or negative one because you have to spend money to burn that energy somewhere. Like it, it's it's a very good thing, um, and I. I, I like a lot of people just don't understand how an energy works or what what's happening. And I don't blame them half the time because Bitcoin mm -hmm. is very easy to quantify. Try quantifying mm -hmm. the amount of money spent by the banking system, printing money, housing their databases, clearing with gold every now and then, paying armed guards, starting wars in countries. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, that's a lot of energy being wasted there. It's just not easy to quantify. And because Bitcoin has a network difficulty, we can basically just reverse engineer it and tell you how much energy it's using. And so it's an easy target. I, again, it's an easy target for clickbait articles is honestly the argument I would make. Yeah, and I hope clickbait articles go away as a result of Bitcoin because that, that would be awesome. <laughs> I, I'm not going to predict that's going away anytime soon. Um, 
QH Freddy writes in and asks, where do you think we will see the current iteration of cryptocurrencies go? Is there some aspect that should be changed, something that should be added? Maybe phrased differently, what are the problems with the current iterations of crypto that you believe need to be addressed? I don't think anything needs to be addressed. It's a it's a fantastic innovation, and it's uh, you know nothing needs to change for Bitcoin to succeed. It's already going to succeed. It's already succeeded in many ways. So, uh, in a sense, um, you know, could could particular things be improved? Yeah, uh, certainly privacy is a big one. Um, I think a lot a lot of people. That's would another like question. You know, what would yeah. you improve? Privacy is one of them. Yeah, um, and you know there 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 are privacy technologies that already exist, but um, economically incentivizing it with something like cross input signature aggregation, which may come up in the next soft fork or something like that, would be amazing, and that that would enhance Bitcoin. But like nothing needs to necessarily happen to Bitcoin, or things don't necessarily need improvement. You know, like it's kind of like asking, you know, what could gold do that, <laughs> that uh, to to improve its properties? It's like it's it's already. It, not become silver. <laughs> yeah, and like it's uh you know basically like uh you know the the way bitcoin works is is just fine. I I don't think you need to go around trying to improve it. This is again looking through the lens of technology instead of money. Money is better when it stays the same. Technology is better when it's continuously improving. So, I think one of the final discussion points that I think would be pretty interesting. Uh, Bunjaman brings this up. Hi, Tom and Jimmy. Do you think Bitcoin is going to become heavily regulated? What are your general thoughts on how the government here in the U.S., for example, and around the world too, have handled crypto? What would the U.S. government have to do to quote-unquote kill Bitcoin at a functional level? And thank you for your time. Yeah, um, I don't think they can kill it. Uh, And you can kind of see it in China. So China's Mm -hmm. banned Bitcoin like in some uh, small way, like like 30 times or something between 2013 and yeah. 2017. Uh, and there, there was all, all these news articles. And the first time it happened, like there was a big drop in Bitcoin. Second time it happened, it dropped the, uh, big again. And by the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time, like nobody cared, right? Like, uh, and, he, and finally in 2017, they were just sort of like, hey, we're going to ban all exchanges here in China. And guess what happened? Well, people started using local Bitcoins. That's a peer-to-peer way to trade. Um, and they and the demand uh, on local Bitcoins and the volume exchange there went through the roof because mm-hmm. you know there weren't exchanges. Um, and so, of course, China said, we're going to ban the website, local Bitcoins. And you know any other similar things, we're also going to ban. So they banned them. So what, what happened next? Well, these people started going and creating their own WeChat groups, mm-hmm. their own Telegram groups. They they started trading on their own because, of course, there's uh, there's a thriving market for that. And you know, try as they might to ban sort of exchanging, people found a way. And I, I expect similar things to happen. Should India ban Bitcoin? You know, people are gonna. I, I think WhatsApp is very used, uh, very much used there. So it's possible that uh, India would have a lot of, uh, you know, WhatsApp users, or WhatsApp groups, or something like that if they ban Bitcoin. Um, like just saying that people are not allowed to do X is usually not enough. And enforcement in this case is going to be extremely difficult because. You would literally have to go into each person's house and figure out what they're doing. Or mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are always uh, ways to shield what you're doing uh, or to encrypt your web traffic and things like that. So, um, you know, 
like they could ban the companies, and that's probably the point of pressure that they'll use. Uh, but I, I, I don't think it would succeed. But in any case, there are already senators and re- representatives that are into Bitcoin. Uh, Senator Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming, uh, Congressman um, Warren Davidson from Ohio, uh, Patrick McHenry from North Carolina. Uh, like they, they, I believe, own Bitcoin and are advocating for Bitcoin. And there will probably be more along the way. So uh, it's, uh, you know, like, there, there are many ways in which, uh, you know, many fronts in which we can fight this. And worst, co- worst case scenario, you can, you can still do things over the internet. Yeah, I mean, the things I would say is, without getting into too many details, is Bitcoin really was designed to be hard to get rid of. Like, it mm-hmm. actually doesn't require that much to function or to send a transaction. Like, you can send it over radio signals. I've seen people do proofs of concepts and maybe even actually make it work of like, you can just use an, um, an emoji, you know, alphabet to make a Bitcoin transaction. And as long as the app, you could, a very simple app, you could write, could decode it into an address. You can send that. It it really, and I know there's like Bitcoin satellites now launched by a couple of startups just in case they try to ban it. And they're already there guys. They're up there. Mm -hmm. There's these really cheap kits for sending it. It's already very, very much so kind of prepared itself. People just with the money and extra time they have have been preparing Bitcoin in case the Western governments try to ban it. There's already satellites going around. It would not be very easy to do. Uh, Additionally, like I think all of this comes from theoretically could the US, if they all agreed, just, oh, all these companies are banned. All these websites are banned. And if we catch you using it, you're in trouble. Would that damage Bitcoin and maybe delay its adoption for 10 years? Perhaps. But do you really think all U.S. senators and congressmen and women are going to agree tomorrow on one thing? (laughs) I mean, I just started Googling around and I found some billionaire saying Bitcoin's bad. And then I saw Kentucky apparently just made Bitcoin mining tax deductible, which is interesting. Maybe I shouldn't be moving to Tennessee. Um, (laughs) But like, I mean, like you can see all these different approaches, but the point is, at least in the US, right? And a lot of Western governments are organized in a similar fashion. States can make a lot of their own laws. And if you're you're not, I don't think you're going to get any federal thing where it's just all banned or where one state... and so if that doesn't happen, it's not going to be banned. I think I think if you wanted to ban it, the, uh, you know, <laughs> the Illuminati or whatever conspiracy people you would want to put in, they would have, I think 2013 is when they should have done it. It's a little too late now. It's it's adopted. There's people in government saying it's good. I, I think it's too late, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And it's uh, it, the cat's out of the bag. And, you know, it's already decentralized. There's no single choke point that you're going to be able to regulate and so on. It's designed that way. So, yeah, I don't think you could kill it. So I've got a couple of wrap up questions here. Cass writes in and asks, what do you think about the prospect of introducing Rust code to the Bitcoin code base? Thoughts on Rust in general as a Bitcoin core level language? Hashtag. Rust Evangelism Strike Force. <laughs> yeah, Rust is a great language, and uh, there's already a lot of projects in Rust and Bitcoin. So there's a project called Rust Lightning that uh, Square uses to have um, a Lightning library available in Rust. Um, I'm not aware of a Rust Bitcoin client, although you know I, it wouldn't surprise me. There, there have been discussions about. 
uh, moving over to Rust from C++, but that didn't really go anywhere because you know the whole code base is, or a large part of the code base is in C++. Um, that said, it, it it's got potential as uh, you know ancillary stuff, um, and certainly things like uh, Rust Lightning are going to be very helpful going forward. Uh, so. Yeah, it's a good language. I like it. And, you know, I, I think there is going to be a lot of um, Bitcoin projects that are written in it. Valko Malev writes in and asks, what is the best way to progress my career of a programmer? What is the one thing that is most commonly neglected? And besides improving my skills and knowledge in the field of machine learning, which our company works with a lot of data, and I'm hoping that I can progress in that path specifically, I don't know what I can do more in order to progress in my career. What advice would you give me besides that and improving my social skills, which believe me, I'm working on? <laughs> yeah, social skills are very important. Um, the the thing that I would say is, uh, well, it depends on which track you want to go. So usually programmers are given two tracks. You can go um, sort of like the architect route or the managerial route. Mm. Um, so uh, the, the top level architect is usually called the CTO in any company. Uh, the top level manager is something like a VP of engineering, something like that. Um, and you know th- those are pretty different tracks, and you're you're gonna want to want to figure out which one you want to go to because they require very different things. So if you're going down sort of like the architect track, um, then you you want to be the expert in a lot of stuff, right? Like you you need to absorb a lot of knowledge, and you, mm-hmm. you need to be able to opine on all of that. Now, that's not to say that you can ignore people skills on this track because you you really do need to communicate your ideas effectively. You need to be able to communicate with your project managers and things like that to um, be able to explain your ideas and uh, explain the concepts in, in a way that they can understand. Um, you're probably also going to be writing a good deal of documentation and product specifications and things like that as uh, the architect. So make sure you enjoy doing that stuff. Um, and if you can, if you can do stuff like that really well, um, then yeah, like, uh, like go, go towards that track. Um, it's probably going to mean you're, you know, playing with different languages, um, every few months. Uh, it's going to mean like trying out different tech stacks, um, and like knowing the, uh, you know, good, uh, you know, the pluses and minuses of we each one and things, things of that nature. Um, you're going to read probably a good deal of books and uh, go to conferences, listen to talks and uh, connect with other people. Um, also, like getting to that level, you, you, you're going to want to get to know um, sort of uh, salesman types. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's going to sound a little weird, but the easiest way to become a CTO is to be a co-founder, right? Like, and, uh, and oftentimes uh, that, that requires uh, teaming up with somebody else. And generally I, I tell a lot of programmers, if you're, if you're a really good programmer, what you want to partner up with is somebody that can sell. Um, mm-hmm. and th- this, the, the two things that a startup needs are you know, like a good product, which you're going to provide as the CTO, and somebody that can sell that product, somebody that's a salesman type. If you can't do those two things, then you're you're not really. It's going to be very hard for you to get off the ground. Um, so those are the two things. So get to know some salesman types. Um, you know, you, you might need to network a little bit and hang out with uh, people of that type. Um, I, I think a really good step in your career, if you get a chance to do it, is to take on some sort of like sales engineering role. Um, mm-hmm. That's yeah, I took on to, that, and I think it just. 
I mean, in the mechanical engineering side made me, I mean, I mean, I grew so much more in my ability to just accomplish things when I became a and sales present, engineer. right? Like yeah, you're, and you're, present. you're doing right now, um, mm-hmm. and and that's that's a very important quality. And and the the subtle thing that you're going to get out of that is you'll get to know what really good salesmen are, right? Like the people <laughs> that don't sell, you're going to be like, okay, well, like maybe not this person, but the people that really know how to sell, you're gonna you're gonna pick up on at least cues to know, hey, th- this person's really good at selling and mm-hmm. here's what they're doing to do that. And you can identify potential uh, people to found a company with. Now, if you don't, uh, you know, if you don't want to start your sure. own company, you don't necessarily need to do that. Uh, but that that's another way in which you can progress in your career towards an architect. Um, the other path is more managerial. Again, this is like the path to, you know, VP of engineering or something like that. Um, you're going to want to study like different processes. Uh, so, you know, uh, code review, extreme programming, partner programming, um, you know, like uh, uh, testing frameworks, um, you know, how, how to recruit people. You know, you need, you're going to need to um, convince a lot of people to come join your organization. So that that tends to be a big skill. Again, sales engineering might be helpful in that role mm-hmm. because you're going to need to sell yourself to a large degree to people uh, that don't necessarily know that much about tech. Um and you know, make make it clear that you you can meet deadlines, you can meet goals, and uh, and you know, have good discipline and deliver on the things that you promise. Um, that you could define the things that you know maybe they're not entirely clear on. That you could push back and protect your engineers from um, you know a lot of meetings. So you're gonna have to like go to a lot of meetings on their behalf and like protect them from that and 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 things of things of that nature. You're you're going to have to. Uh, develop a lot of people skills because you're going to have to have good relationships with the people that you're managing. And that's um, oftentimes very difficult for a lot of programmers. Um, so unless you have a You really stick out if that, you're good at that, you're saying. Yeah. And like having good relationships, right? Like I actually care about your career. I want to help you succeed. Like, you know, and communicating that, like letting them know that you, you want them to grow. Like these are all skills that you're going to need to pick up. Um, and that means that you're going to have to interact with people a lot more, and yeah, uh, and not just hey, like I'm I'm selling myself. It's it's hey, I actually care about you, and I want you to grow. How can I help you grow in your career? Um, and you know, uh, like most people think of that like downwards, right? How can I help the people that are working for me to grow in their career? Uh, you actually, it, it's actually more important that you do that for the people that are above you. Uh, so if you mm-hmm. can help your manager get that promotion, guess who he's going to bring with you or who she's going to bring with you, right? Like that, um, and you need to learn how to um, sort of do that. And a lot of it is making them look good and, you know, like, um, you know, getting a good relationship with a lot of people. So um, yeah, th- those would be the things that I would say, but yeah, it, it all depends on you. Some people like, they listen to what I just said and go, oh, that sounds horrible. I don't want to do that. Or uh, and it's okay to like stay in your position, but if you if you do want to grow, if you have a little more ambition and more time on your hands, certainly because all of these positions you're going to spend way more time than you do now as a programmer that's doing whatever. Um, you know, you're 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 going to uh, have to put in the work and really enjoy the things that you might not enjoy right now. Yeah, and I mean, I would say no matter what you do, I mean, I've had, I mean, I went from like God. I worked in an, uh, as a like industrial engineer for an insurance company to mm-hmm. automotive engineering to sales 
to now podcasting. Um, <laughs> I'm probably not a normal person, but mm. you know, I would just say that no matter if you have ambition, like really listen to w- how you're feeling. And if you're not growing, then you're probably not growing, right? It's very mm. easy to get into a position, keep doing that for years and then go, have you really learned any new skills? Like if you came back to this day one, would you do it better? Because if I think of myself, if I were to be thrown back into my previous roles, I would do so much better than I used to do when I was like 25. And, um, you know, and if you look back and that's not happening, then that it might be a little scary, but you need to make sure you're challenging yourself in a way that's forcing you to get develop new skills, right? And I think a lot of people, mm. and some people don't want to do that and that's fine. You know, if you want one mm. position or whatever, but if you really are ambitious, just make sure what you're doing is actually making you better at something. Mm. All right. Yeah. Final question. John O'Shea writes in and asks, in 15 years, do you think you'll be able to order a Big Mac for 99 Satoshis? <sighs> that might be too much money. Yeah, you might get like 10 Whoppers. I don't know. <laughs> So there it is. If anything, underestimating how much it could be worth, which I, you know, I, I I don't make any exact predictions because it's just, why would you do that? But I would say just, you know, there's only really, I mean, some of it's been lost. There's really probably only about 12 million Bitcoins and that's less Bitcoins than there are millionaires in the U.S. So if they all wanted one, they're not getting it. That's all I would say. All right. Well, on that Bitcoin to the moon note, I guess we'll leave it there. Um, Jimmy, I really want to thank you for coming on. I mean, this was awesome. I mean, to be honest, I've seen you on other interviews all over the YouTube. You're always talking to (laughs) Tone Vase or some other weird people, to be honest. But I mean, there have always been really good conversations. And you're always someone who's just like, that guy knows what he, he, that guy isn't full of shit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I'll put that on my resume. Not full of shit. I mean, you. it would, speaking of standing out in an industry, I think it would be like the number one thing for this one. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think this will be a good kind of introductory thing for people. As usual, they'll probably walk away with more questions than answers. But now hopefully they know which questions to ask. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I hopefully you can pick up my books if you want to learn more. And oh yeah, plug yourself. A lot of that. Yeah, so I, I've written three books: "Programming Bitcoin." If you're a programmer, um, it teaches you all about the Bitcoin uh, protocol. Uh, "Little Bitcoin Book." That's for people that don't know much about Bitcoin at all and just want like to understand what's what it's about. Um, it makes the case for Bitcoin from like a human rights perspective and all that. Um, and then thank God for Bitcoin. That's the moral argument for Bitcoin. It comes from a Christian perspective, though you don't have to be Christian to appreciate that. You don't need you don't you don't want to be stealing from people. Um, I, I also have my website, programmingbitcoin.com. I have um, my newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. I have a two-day uh, you know, programming seminar for people that are, uh, want to learn Bitcoin and a very intense way. It's like two days mm-hmm. of uh, eight I've hours per day it. instruction. Uh, and uh, yeah, the next one may be in Miami, um, uh, definitely in Mexico in August, but possibly in Miami in June. Um, there's also uh, my uh, Twitter, Jimmy Song, uh, Medium, Jimmy Song, GitHub, Jimmy Song. You can go check them out. Um, and I'm tweeting all the time. So, you know, go. Go take a look at that if you're interested. 
And I'll put um, all of those in the description as well so people can find them. But, uh, yep. Again, thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed this. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for having me. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Law is Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telus, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Akawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasser, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Heron, Drita Full, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Disaru, Daniel Hyde, Burke Garcia, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Son Garcia, Sean Vollmer, My Name is Nobody, Joel Corey, Alethros, Telus, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchik, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Divider Symbol, Jan Randall, Robert Ducks, Michael Maggie, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Us, HardForeRoom.com, Sam McArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Carrie Baldino, Endless Longs, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R., Trevor Power, Stu, Elena, Nanya, Daniel Nishpal, Franco Frederick, Dan, Golinowski, Alex Karras Steele, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Kierman, Carlos Faldos, Carnivore Bear, Denovan Russell, Zabers Burz, Licky, Man Porchigi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Spencer King, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Dahoo, Sarah Light, Anthony Garefa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Deniscu, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, Rodney, Morton Spenson. Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Ref Schneider, Mai Sharona, Aaron, Roman, Jacob Samix, Air Rats, Joaquir Kant, Eshildar Epstein, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakira, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpeet Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy N.G., Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshley, Jiu Jitsu, Sean Parker, 
Dame P, John Wisink, Sam Vensel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Michael Deaton, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. 